0: I was recently asked why I put so much time and effort into speaking about New Zealand's national security. The same reason you should, I replied. For our children, nieces, nephews and their children. Hi, I'm Simon Ewing Jarvie. It's our responsibility to leave a better, safer, freer country than we inherited. And the only way that's going to happen is if ordinary citizens are involved in the national security conversation. That conversation should start with a comprehensive national security strategy being formulated, not the compartmentalised and under-resourced thinking which has been allowed to take hold, because that is indefensible, New Zealand. Hi, Heather. Welcome back.
1: Thanks very much.
0: National security postures for New Zealand. That's the topic for today.
1: Hmm, what do you mean by a posture?
0: Well, it's not no, the I've crane my... stats from karate
1: <laughs> I'm standing with good posture. Is that what you mean?
0: No, no. And the thing is... Um, you hear about geopolitics and you know all those fancy words, but the whole idea of this podcast is to have a discussion for everyone and uh, not just academics and officials and, and politicians. So let me give you a, a simple analogy. You live in a you live in a nice house in a nice neighbourhood, mm-hmm. right? and you've got neighbours on either side that you get on with, but they can't stand each other and they are frequently shouting, occasionally throwing things. Now across the road, you can't get them to stop. Across the road, there's this big house full of some really big dudes, and they're not interested because it's not affecting them. And then one day, a misdried rock from one of your neighbours, instead of going across the fence, comes through your window. Police can't do anything about it, noise control, of course, can't do anything about it. They do a burnout in the street and they knock into one of the cars belonging to the, street, the big dudes across the road. Now they're interested. They come over, they get all the neighbours. They tell them to stop the crazy or they're going to start cracking some heads together and everyone calms down until the big dudes in the big house across the road leave and then it all starts again. Well, it's not unlike the situation of regional conflict and regional tensions.
1: No, there are big players. Yep,
0: the Americas are, of the world, the yeah. Chinas of the world and the um, and the smaller and the regional small players. players here who, you know, will squabble over something or other. Yep. So and Those uh,
1: neighbourhood yeah. wars are notoriously hard to get on top of.
0: Yeah, they are. Yeah, mm. yeah. So we've got some different, some different postures that we could uh, adopt, and, and I'm talking about this in a strategic sense for New Zealand. And before I do, let me just run you through some significant dates, because these are really good to have in the back of your mind when you're thinking about who should be our allies, or our partners, or our friends and everything. Now in 1917, three years into the First World War, America joined in. In 1941, in late 1941, only after they were attacked at Pearl Harbor, did the Americans join in. Two years after the start of the war. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And, I mean, they'd been cooperating in other ways. End of 1941 into January forty-two, the Arcadia Conference is significant because it really set out the agreement of Europe first, Germany first, as in we're going to fight, we're going to fight a holding war in the Pacific with the Japanese and we're going to deal with Europe first because otherwise Russia might get overrun. And one of the um, outcomes of that was that Churchill was prepared to fight in Burma to protect India rather than protect Australia. Curtin, the Prime Minister of Australia, brought one of his divisions home, so, you know, the moving parts of actually how partnerships and alliances work out isn't cut and dry. When you say, "Well, there's a war, so we're all in here," hmm. uh, and so we've got we've got a bit to talk about there.
1: So, those learnings of history are important when we're trying to predict the
0: future. Well, they are. What it, the prediction that I, well, the learnings that I take out of it is that you can't actually really. Rely not trust is probably not is too harsh, but you can't rely on people to turn up even if they say they're going to. And I use the example of if someone landed on Ch- the Chatham Islands and annexed it, what would we do? Well, there's nothing we can do because we don't have a force capable of doing anything. Mm. And uh, would our parties would our partners come to the assistance of us to for take the back of the, Ch- the Chatham, Chatham Islands? Mm, yeah, exactly. Probably not. No. So the four options that we're going to discuss for national security posture are. If you want to read about these, I've written about them on the blog, so you can go to unclas.com and just search Divergent Options, or you can go to the excellent website DivergentOptions.org and then just search on New Zealand and you'll find my paper there. You can also read a great paper by Dr Ruben Steff from Waikato University in New Zealand's National Security Journal titled The Biden Administration and New Zealand's Strategic Options. Asymmetric Hedging, Type 5 Eyes Alignment, and armed neutrality let's just list off the four options and we'll come back and discuss the, um, the uh, risks and versus the gains firstly option one is to maintain armed alignment with our traditional allies and partners the us the uk australia canada second option is to seek out new treaties new alliances new partners and particularly those more aligned to protecting our economic interests option three is a strategy of armed non-alignment so you know we've got teeth We'll use them, but we're not actually in anyone's camp. And option four, which is similar but quite different politically, is armed neutrality. And if you think Switzerland is a good example of an armed neutral country. There is a fifth one, which I discounted when I was looking at it, which is unarmed neutrality, and it's simply not workable because we'd have to surrender our our exclusive economic zone because Mm. we couldn't enforce it.
1: So is there an easy solution? I'm assuming there's pros and cons for each. Yeah, there is. So that's four options that New Zealand could Take mm-hmm. for different postures. I don't hear much discussion about these things, and yet um, I pay more attention than most probably to what's happening in the national security space.
0: No, well, there isn't. There isn't much, you know, that grand strategy discussion. Uh, where are we now? Pretty much the same place we were at the end of the two world wars. You know, buddies with the USA, UK, Australia, Canada to a lesser extent. And yet, um, the
1: world's changed significantly in that time. Yeah, it has. Yeah, yeah.
0: and whether we like it or not. We ultimately rely for our national security on the nuclear umbrella protection of the Western world.
1: Hmm. So New Zealand at the moment is adopting option one, I'm guessing. Maintain armed alignment with traditional allies and partners. That's where we are at the moment. Yeah,
0: well, it's just the default position status quo never really gets challenged.
1: Except we've we've got changes happening in New Zealand in terms of how much... What percentage of GDP governments are prepared to spend on defence as a starting point, mm. uh, And also what sort of interaction there is between security agencies?
0: Yeah, so two, two parts. I mean, the, the GDP percentage spend thing won't really take you anywhere useful in a national security sense. Uh, it sort of reflects after the fact what you, what you did, but not whether it was well spent or not. Sort of like mm. the family budget you... Yeah. You bought too many chubbies?
1: Yep. So we might decide that option one still is the right one, but it needs it needs a, a review at least yep. and some discussion. What about option two? So seeking new treaties and allies, partners more closely aligned to protecting economic interests. What are the pros and cons there?
0: Hmm. Well, just crossing over from option one to option two, we have to remember that in other people's worldview, our our friends enemies are our enemies whether we want that to be the case or not and so as near peers or great power conflict emerges and it is emerging you can't you can't say it's not then who we are seen to be friendly with to some degree determines who our perceived enemies are or who perceives us as enemies and so in the second option there's the the alternative view of thinking about well, do do we need New alliances. Do we need to think about, say, protecting our economic interests? And in the most extreme example of this, quite you know, theoretical approach, why would you, why would we not have a mutual defence pact with China? I mean, they're our biggest trading Good trading
1: partner. partner. Yeah,
0: yeah. I can hear the sabers mm. rattling out there. So I'll just lock the door. But remember, they, China was an ally of ours during World War Two. We're talking about getting into the fringes of the quadrilateral, what I call the Pacific Area Treaty Organisation. One of the four of those players is Japan, who was quite prepared to invade and occupy New Zealand not that long ago. That's
1: currency printed.
0: Yeah, Mm. and (laughs) maps. So time... Time changes things. So we need to, instead of focusing on, oh, it's just always been that way or it's always going to be that way, think about what's what's realistic? What what do we need to do to keep New Zealand safe now and in the future? Should we, for instance, align with other countries in the TPP where uh, we have significant trading economic bases or other, RCEP and other uh, organisations like that, ASEAN?
1: In the modern world, it is trade that drives a lot of decision-making, isn't it, in terms of our international relationships?
0: Yeah, And if we um, consider ourselves a a Pacific nation, why shouldn't we consider being um, the lead or a lead for a a Pacific Nations Mutual Defence Pact? Mm. So in this circumstance, there would certainly be some loss of Five Eyes intelligence sharing because we might not be in the Five Eyes anymore, um, there'd certainly be some loss of trade. But we need to remember, as much as China's a big trading partner, over 40% of our existing trading partners would probably back a, a US-led coalition going off to do something militarily. Yeah, We'd certainly need to increase and adjust our defence capability to um, align with new partners, so there would be an initial cost. So it's not, it's not a simple case about the old in with the new. No,
1: and it, when you're looking... I don't like just looking at platforms as a discussion point for our Defence Force, mm. but in fact, you do need to be thinking very carefully a long way out, mm. planning well out, yep. to make sure that uh, you are fit for purpose for whatever scenario might await you.
0: Yeah, and and just to show some of the practical difficulties of actually changing treaties when you've got um, platforms, for instance, that are authorised for you from, say, the United States, we're not going to be allowed to take one of our Poseidon's and landed in a country that the United States deems to be a threat and no. you know let them have a look through and Might see how it all works. So there's, no a, there's all quickly. sorts of, we shouldn't discount having that discussion, but there's all sorts of practicalities involved in Is it. It, it may not be though, it's either or, it may be a both and situation between option one and option two.
1: Right. So option three then the strategy of armed non-alignment. Hmm.
0: This fits best with our theoretically independent foreign policy, which successive governments like to roll out whenever they make a decision that other countries don't like. Mm-hmm. We're not actually that independent, but it does it does play well to the idea of doing you know only UN Security Council resolution operations. We would find there would be trade and political and military implications for it, and undoubtedly our interoperability with almost everyone would degrade over time because the only way you could remain armed and non-aligned is to buy what you could on the world market and some of our existing partners wouldn't be supplying us with military equipment for instance.
1: It seems to me we're just too small to carry that one off.
0: Yeah but having said that I'm going to talk about Ireland but in, and there are countries that are very close to that. It would result I think in a drift towards peace support operations and humanitarian assistance disaster relief only. Over time we would have less mass, less lethality and less sustainability and over a relatively short period of time. I think.
1: Politically, I think at the moment anyway, that would have quite a lot of appeal with the general public.
0: Yeah, it, it is mm. It is superficially appealing, but very hard to pull off in reality. You know, if you think that even a power as large as Australia can't actually fight and win a war on its own, no. it can't actually defend itself on its own, and yet its yeah. it's, it's, its capability and its expenditure on, on national security is massive compared mm. to us. They still can't do it alone.
1: No. And you've really piqued my interest with option four, which is armed neutrality, because Switzerland has been, forf- well, since the end of the Second World War anyway, hmm. such a, um, a, a fascination in hmm. the way it organises its national security, hasn't it?
0: Yeah, and they've got terrain on their side, but actually so have we. Yeah. There are some advantages. They've got national conscription. Everyone serves until 50 in some form. And they, have, they spend up front to arm, and they're a bit of a prickly nest to get into. Now yeah. they don't actually spend a, a tremendous amount to maintain that. No. This gives us the greatest independence in terms of foreign policy, and it's the only posture that would enable us to be this so-called broker role between, you know, people talking about, oh, we could broker a deal between this country and that. Well, that's never going to happen while we're allied with one of them, no. or even in a friend's relationship. But we could realistically be the broker in the same way that the Swiss are the um, international recross hub, if you like. We would absolutely need to supercharge the economy to pay for that because we would have to ramp up all sorts of capabilities. But hey, supercharging the economy isn't a bad thing. It would take at least 10 years by the time you got all the parties and all the people or most of the people to agree because you don't want to bring in a policy like that and then three years later have another government change and have it all taken out again. It requires a substantial improvement in our manufacturing base. There's a whole lot of things that a neutral country especially at the end of long shipping lines um, has to be able to do, has to be able to make to be able to maintain that stance. It does mean that we can still do peacekeeping. The Irish are a good example. They've been peacekeeping since the Congo in the 60s. They're a perfectly capable force, but they're, they're neutral. Mm. The Swiss actually have troops in Vatican City, did you know?
1: Well, I knew that they were quite active despite being neutral mm. and well, certainly well-armed, but um, I think that if you said neutral country and armed, people would think of Switzerland. They mm. wouldn't automatically go to Ireland.
0: Yeah, I'll bet you didn't know that the, the Swiss troops that are the Vatican Guard with those cool uniforms are wearing Kiwi icebreaker merino.
1: <laughs> I didn't know that.
0: flash resistant and, yeah. and uh, we're not sponsored by Icebreaker at all, folks. <laughs> That's the four options in a nutshell. Does that make sense?
1: Yeah, it does. Um... So have you got a favoured option?
0: I guess I have a favoured option in theory and a favoured option in practicality. And the favoured option in theory is uh, neutrality. And the reason for that is it forces you to sit down and say, what what is every capability that we possibly need to be able to protect Kiwis and our interests? And that gives you the baseline. Instead of starting from the existing baseline, what's the least we can get away with spending, which assumes that everyone else will accept that and turn up when we hope they will. Hmm. And I'll go back to the chat of If you use unneutrality neutrality as the base of the planning tool for determining what essential supplies, manufacturing and defence capabilities we need, it addresses the whole issue of how much mass, how much lethality, how much force projection and how much sustainability we need. It has to be able to cover the Southwest Pacific Territories. It has to be able to cover the, our huge search and rescue zone, our humanitarian assistance and disaster relief responsibilities in the region, economic zone and the Southern Ocean. Once you've established that, you can then work backwards to say, well, what's practically achievable and what we should be doing is not discounting working with other partners who share our interest in economic wealth in ASEAN uh, and in um. CPTPP and and so on and so forth. And we also need to look at the the Pacific Island nations and take some lead there if we're going to actually, uh, other than just aid, which is all we seem to do, military aid and Hmm. foreign aid of other sorts. So
1: as you were talking through the various options, it took me immediately to wearing my business consultancy hat Hmm. and thinking if I was running through options like this that required some significant change to adopt some of them, Hmm. You actually need to do a lot of planning, a lot of thinking. And I would have thought that a a war game would be the perfect way to examine those options.
0: Yeah, we do a whole lot of red teaming for corporates Mm. and others. And this is exactly the the ultimate red team exercise, where you sit down and bring in a group of different, different thinkers and work out how would you attack New Zealand. And I don't want to go too far down that track because I want to talk about it in the next episode. But what is it that we would need in terms of national capability, not just tanks and planes, to be armed and neutral. And it's a substantial undertaking which needs a whole lot of different people thinking different things and coming at it from different angles to work out. Yeah. It's an ideal Red Team activity.
1: Yeah, it is. Uh, just take one example, move away from the defence aspect or the, the hard platforms, but manufacturing. If, if you're starting to talk about New Zealand manufacturing, so that we are much more independent than we are at the moment. You know, pharmaceuticals is probably a great example. Yep. That in itself is a significant change uh, and requires significant investment, yep. both private and public,
0: actually. Yeah, so as I say, the three Fs, yeah. fuel, fertilizer and ph- pharmaceuticals. See what I did there?
1: <laughs> Need a spelling lesson. What was in
0: the inbox for questions?
1: Yes, we do have a question. This has come from Penny from Canterbury. Mm-hmm. And her question was, she listened to the podcast, I think, about your projections out to 2050. Yep. To what degree do your projections out to 2050 and beyond resonate with younger generations? Because it's them, they will be the ones who will have to see the strategy through.
0: Yeah. a bad question. That's an excellent question. Absolutely right. You know, the, the younger generation will have to see this through my projections have come from statistics new zealand is if you've listened to the episode you'll know or well, the data has come from there and then i've applied my own logic to it my own set of eyes would, i'd encourage other people to actually go and do that as well see what you think do you agree and what i really would like to hear from is from younger people in the audience so i probably haven't got you know thousands of millennials queuing up at their um <laughs> at their earbuds to listen to this but if you know some run that episode two and three by them it's only only a couple of short episodes, see what they think, and please encourage them to send in in their comments and questions.
1: You need to turn those into a video game.
0: Crikey, it's still midnight to 6am left I suppose. (laughs) Next episode.
1: Mm, What are you going to be talking about?
0: I'm going to be talking about weaknesses and threats in New Zealand, and I want to go back to, uh, I referred in an earlier episode to attack versus invasion, I want to talk about attack versus invasion versus occupation New Zealand and the surrounding waters and territories that we're interested in, and how I would create and operate a red team to show how how that should be assessed.
1: Hmm. I'm looking forward to hearing that.
0: That's it for this episode of Indefensible New Zealand. Thanks for joining the National Security Conversation. If you found this podcast episode useful, please subscribe and share it with your friends. For more information on New Zealand's national security, or to send in questions for the series, please go to my website, unclays.com